There was an article a few years ago that appeared in the San Francisco Chronicles regarding a young man who, while he was walking along the street, he found a $5 bill. And then when he picked it up, he made a vow right then and now that he will never keep his eyes off the street anymore. That he will walk looking down, not up. Now, you don't have to be very bright to realize that this is very dangerous. But the paper went on to say, and I quote, he said, Over the years, he accumulated, among other things, 29,516 buttons, 54,172 pins, 12 cents, a bent back, and a miserly disposition. But he also missed on something. He lost seeing the glory of the sunlight, the radiance of the stars, and the smiles of friends, and the freshness of a blue sky. Even a secular newspaper can discern the misery of greed. The Bible tells us that there are even graver consequences to greed and covetousness. The Bible tells us that unbridled greed produces an unadulterated misery. That uncontrollable covetousness results from an unabating grief in life. That the fever of wanting more and more and more can only produce a perpetual pain and incompleteness and emptiness. And I could not think of a better example about what greed and covetousness and envy can do to a person and the consequences of it as in this story of Ahab and Jezebel. And here in this story, in this juncture in our series, we confront a poor man, a simple man, but faithful man by the name of Naboth, the Jezreelite. He owned a small vineyard, a small piece of land, And the only problem is, is it butted up against King Ahab's garden of his summer palace. First, you need to understand what it means to own a vineyard for a Jew. For a Jew to own a vineyard is a big deal. And more than that, it was his inheritance. Just as the people of God came out of the desert into the promised land were given inheritance... You who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have been given an inheritance that is yours for eternity. And just as Jezebel and Ahab have tried to take that inheritance from this man who refused and even he died for it, you and I under the command of God to hold on to our inheritance in Christ, no matter who tells us to do what, no matter what pressure we have under us, no matter what difficulties we get into, that our inheritance is incorruptible and we must hold on to it until we see Jesus face to face. A vineyard was the very emblem of Israel itself. A vineyard was the very sign of fruitfulness to a Jew. In Isaiah chapter 5, God compares Israel to a vineyard. To own a vineyard in Israel is to possess the very symbol of the nation. But this poor Naboth, when his ancestors came from out of slavery into the desert, then into the promised land, part of their inheritance was this piece of land. And the only problem was that it was so close to King Ahab's 
garden. And I have felt incomplete without owning the whole of the surrounding land. I want you to hear me accurately and not to misunderstand me, please. Greed always makes you feel incomplete. Greed will always make you feel discontented. No matter how much you have or how much you don't have, you will feel incomplete unless you get more and more. And the more you get, the more incomplete you're going to feel. I heard the story about the employer who was walking into the staff lunchroom one day, and he heard one of his workers saying, if I only had $1,000, my problems would be solved. And I will be perfectly content. He's being blessed of God. And he knew that not a thousand dollars, not all the money in the world, is going to make anybody perfectly contented. He came over. He said, here's a thousand dollars. Here's a thousand. I want to give it to you because I love to see somebody completely happy. (laughs) He hasn't even gone around the corner from the cafeteria. Within earshot, he heard us say, why in the world didn't I say two thousand? But that's what greed does. You're never contented. Ahab's greed is like a man who has a nail in his shoe. (laughs) He could never enjoy walking anywhere because of that nail. Ahab's greed was like the man who owned the Rolls Royce, but he was frustrated because he could not have somebody else's motor scooter. Years ago, some of you remember that greed was one of the seven deadly sins. (laughs) In fact, when the word greed is mentioned, most of us conjure in our minds Ebenezer Scrooge in the back room counting money. But all of this has changed. And thanks to the movie industry, Michael Douglas could say, greed is good. But regardless of what modern day dress that we put on greed, it is in the Garden of Eden you're going to find the best definition of greed. I want to stop right here because I want to tell you, and I think most of you know what I'm going to say, that the word is misused and often abused. There are people who use that word to manipulate you to think their way. <laughs> Do you remember the days of the communists that considered capitalism to be greed? They thought that hard work and achievement And doing something great with one's life is greed. Hogwash. That is not the biblical definition of greed. There are some in our society today who feel that those who work hard and earn their living ought to be willing to give their money away to those who can work and refuse to work. Forget it. That is not the biblical greed. Biblical greed is this. That you look at the one thing that God said you cannot have, and then you reach out and you get it. That is the biblical definition of greed. You look at the one thing that God said you cannot have, and you reach out and you take it. Greed is the obsession of getting what you do not have. Greed is a state of non-contentment, no matter how much you have or you don't have. Greed is the state of constant inner emptiness and thinking just the next thing is going to make you happy and the next thing is going to make you happy and you're not happy. Greed is loading up your credit card and having no way to pay back. 
Greed is getting into your car and go to the mall and buy some things that you don't need and you never use. This is the proper definition of greed. But then there is a fine line between the desire of greed and crossing over to accomplish that desire of greed. There is a fine line between the desire of greed and breaking the law to accomplish that desire. Ahab had enough knowledge of the Old Testament, the law of God. He had enough knowledge in his head not to cross that line, but not Baal-worshipping Gentile Jezebel, his wife. She didn't. Jezebel asked her husband, Ahab, what's wrong? Why are you sullen? And you can almost hear the wimp blubbering, you know. I asked Naboth the Jezreelite to sell me his vineyard, but he refused. So I'm eating some worm. Now Jezebel was a woman of action. Jezebel was a woman of determination. She made up for the weakness of her wimpy husband. And while the king had very little moral compunction because of his Jewish background and his knowledge of the law, Jezebel didn't. She had no morals whatsoever. She never let anything or anyone stand in her way. She was cold-hearted, and she would lie under oath, and everybody thought she was charming. Look at verse 7 of 1 Kings 21. Here's what she's basically saying. I'll give you a use of translation. Get up, eat and drink. I will kill to give you what your heart really desires. <laughs> there was a preacher from yesteryear. had a graphic way of describing Jezebel and Ahab. And he said, Ahab squatted on the throne of Israel like a toad squatting on the toad's stool. <laughs> and Jezebel coiled beside him like an otter. <laughs> That's a much more graphic way than just saying Ahab was a bad king. Verse 8. It shows you the determination which led her to forgery and hypocrisy and treachery. She forged a letter in the king's name. And then she stole his signet ring and she stamped that letter. And when the media confronted her about all this, she said, all I was doing is helping my husband to do the job that he was elected to do. She told the population of Jezreel to proclaim a day of fasting. What does that mean? Why did she do that? Well, her public relations officers have explained to her that the Jewish people, when they're going to call a day in which they're going to judge somebody, they call a day of fasting. So she went ahead and, and did her dirty work using the law of God, abusing it. In fact, she was functioning as a king, but she was not elected to function as a king. She bribed two false witnesses to testify against this poor, faithful man of God, Naboth. He is one of the 7,000, you remember from the last message, that God told Elijah that he has these 7,000 people who have never bowed to Baal, who have never kissed the feet of Baal. And here's one of them, faithful man, holding on God's inheritance for him. He was not going to let it go for anything, even to the wicked king Ahab. So she brings these two false witnesses, put him in front of Naboth, and bring false accusation. We heard Naboth to be blaspheming God and to be blaspheming the king. That is a capital crime punishable with a capital punishment of stoning by death. I can only imagine as I looked at this again and again, I'm going to tell you 
why is so graphic for me and why I understand the picture of astonishment and, and horror in the pit of his stomach as, as he stood there and, and heard these people telling lies about him and, and imagine how he was gripped in that fear with false accusation. This wicked woman shed an innocent blood. Why? Greed, covetousness, jealousy. I shared with the vestry not so long ago in one of my devotions a story that is told about two men. One was an envious man, and the other one was a covetous man. The ruler of the land sent a message saying, Grant them one wish each with one proviso. The one who chooses first will get exactly what he asks for. And the other man will get exactly twice what the first one asked for himself. Now the envious man was to choose first. Imagine an envious man is trying to choose something for which the covetous man has to get twice as much. It's a quandary. Well, if I ask for a fortune, he's going to get twice as much. If I ask for a palace, he'll get two palaces. I mean, whatever I ask for, he's going to get twice. An envious person cannot stand that. It's a disease. So he thought about it for a while. And then he asked for one of his eyes to be plucked out. Envy, jealousy, covetousness can never bring peace, can never bring joy. Now I want to pause here for a moment and and tell you about the influence of women that they have over men. This is no trivia, and I'm not jesting. I want to tell you in all seriousness that women who minimize their own influence are unaware of the fact. It's that simple. Both the Word of God and 2,000 years of Christian history present us with the fact that women are spiritually more susceptible than men. And I'm not absolving men of their responsibilities. No, don't misunderstand me. But what I'm telling you is factual. I have known enough history, whether through the missionary movement or the student volunteer movement and all the movements that God used throughout Christian history, I know enough to be able to tell you that women are able to elevate the nation to a spiritual high pitch or denigrate it to the lowest level of failure. Women are able to influence the church into the white heat of revival or divide it into littleness and pettiness of division. Women can lead the home to become heaven itself or can cause it to sizzle with the flame of hell. Listen to me. God has placed that power in the hands of women. I am telling you from the authority of the Word of God. After all, imagine with me, if Jezebel was a godly woman, she could have looked to Ahab in the eye and she would have said, Honey, you have this and you have this and you have this and you have this. You don't need that. She could have said, Ahab, you have all that you want. And further, darling, you have me, buttercup. (laughs) But she didn't. She didn't. Instead, she catered 
to the worst and the lowest and the darkest side of him, pushing him further. Someone said Ahab was evil without Jezebel, but he was worse because of her. Outside of London, England, there's a tombstone in a cemetery and reads, She died for want of things. And right next to it, another tombstone, and reads, He died trying to give them to her. (laughs) Now, if this is a play, this would be the end of Act 1 and the beginning of Act 2. When Jezebel heard that Naboth was now dead, she went to Ahab and she said, The vineyard is yours. It's our anniversary present. And he with cold-heartedness, verse 16, he goes down to take possession of it. Please hear me right. The Word of God never, never, never denied that it is an eminently realistic book. The Bible never takes its character and clean them and wash them and dress them up and wrap them in cellophane and then present them as untouchables. No. The Bible is an eminently realistic book. And the Bible said that there is pleasure in sin for a moment, for a season. If someone covets another man's business or another man's wife or another man's possession, there is a moment of anticipation in that. When you are riding the wave of sin of covetousness, you may feel that you are larger than life, that you are living above all the circumstances. But it is only for a season. It's only for a season. When you look at this, and you see what is happening, you have to ask and say, Where is God? Where is God when the honest man like Naboth is unjustly killed? Where is God? Where is God when this Baal-worshipping woman Jezebel defiles a whole nation? Where is God? Where is God when a vacillating wimp like King Ahab can go to Naboth's vineyard and enjoy the fruit of his murder and greed. Where is God? It is a legitimate question. And it's a right question. In fact, this is the very question that the psalmist in Psalm 73 asked. In fact, he didn't only ask that question, he comes in and confesses at the end and he says, I've almost lost my spiritual footing. I've almost slept. I've almost forsaken God and my faith. He said, because he looked around and he saw the wicked seemed to be getting away with their wickedness. And, and he saw that, that they were wearing their pride on their necks as a necklace and getting away with it. He looked around and he saw them blaspheming and mocking God and, and they seemed to be getting away with it. Where is God in all of this? Listen carefully. God is there. And just because he is merciful, just because he is long-suffering, it does not mean that he is not just. Don't judge by appearances. Don't think that this life is all that is. Be patient and wait, and you will see the goodness of God. 
In 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishabite, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules over Samaria. God knew where he was. He said he's right there in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession. He knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. And Lord, what do I say to Ahab this time? He said, Elijah, you go down and tell him not to enjoy your vineyard too much. It's my own translation. You'll know what I mean. He said, don't enjoy it too much because the dogs that licked Naboth's blood is going to lick yours. Don't ever, ever confuse God's patience as God's weakness or God's indifference or God's unfairness. Don't misjudge God because God will always have the last word. Can you imagine how I have felt after he heard this message? Every time there's a dog that barks. (laughs) (laughs) Neighbor's dog barks. (laughs) You must say to me, well, Michael, does, does God always execute judgment immediately like this? Usually not. Usually not. It is an exception that Adam is confronted by God in the garden. It is an exception that Cain was marked. It is an exception that David was confronted with his sin. It is an exception that Herod the Great died rotting inwardly because of the slaughter of the infants. It is an exception that Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead right in front of the apostles when they lied to them. These might be exceptions, but they are examples. They are examples, and they are enough to remind us that the consequences of sin can be immediate or be delayed. But make no mistake about it, no one will escape the justice of God. No one. God will always have the last word. Some of you may be so indifferent to the faith and you never submitted your life to Jesus Christ. Says, when I'm getting old, I'll do that. Later on, I'll do that. And because you're blessed in your life, you don't see a need for believing and you think you're getting away with it. But the voice of God speaking to you and saying, don't think my patience is going to be forever. You may think, that you are getting away with your life of compromise, that you're getting away with your life of in the world and of the world, and then the church, you'll be a different person. Don't think you get away with that. And because nothing happened to you, don't misjudge God. Don't be tempted to think that God doesn't care about your sin simply because nothing has happened yet. The Bible said, that God commands all men everywhere to repent, for He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world by this man, Jesus Christ. What God is after is repentance. 1 King 22, verse 34, Ahab goes to the battle, disguised, and then he gets shot in the battle. I don't know what your translation in your Bible said, There are no accidents with God. I guarantee you that arrow probably went all over town and came back and found a little spot and just, whoo! God said it. Please listen carefully to the details of the aftermath. It's an example of what God will do and can do. 
King Ahab tells the chauffeur, get out of the battlefield, take me out of here, I'm wounded. And he runs out of the battlefield, and the blood of his wound begins to flow into the chariot and the floor of the chariot. So after he was buried, the chariot gets washed in the pool in Samaria where the prostitutes were bathing. And there, the Bible said the dogs licked up his blood just as the Word of God said. God will always have the last word. You know, there's an irony here. And I am convinced the Holy Spirit, the author of the Bible, put it there so you can understand it, that I can understand it. Ahab introduced the worship of Baal and compromise in the nation and brought in cultic prostitution to the nation of Israel. So the dogs licked his blood from the pool where the prostitutes of Baal were bathing. He had shed blood, the blood of Naboth, cried out to God, and his blood was shed. I want to tell you this, and I'm going to conclude. There are basically three judgments. There is an internal judgment that is between you and God. You judge yourself and come to God in repentance, and God will forgive you. But then there's an external judgment. External judgment when the consequences of your sins. God doesn't get in there and say, look what he did. Here's what I'm going to do. No, God doesn't do that. I explained that once before. It's so simple. If I tell my kid not to touch the fire because the fire is going to burn him and the kid will touch the fire, what will happen? They're going to burn. And God says, what you're going to get is the consequences of your choice. It's not that God is vindictive. God sitting up there going to whip you. No, it doesn't work that way. This is not our God. But the external judgment of your sin is going to come. And if neither of those happen or work or lead you to repentance, then there is the eternal judgment. Oh, God forbid another person listening to me today will ever end up in the eternal judgment. The best judgment of all is the internal judgment. Why? Because you judge yourself and because it is done between you and God. I don't know what it is that you need to judge in your life today. Perhaps it's a relationship that does not belong in your life. Perhaps a possession or or money that is not yours and it doesn't belong to you and you're holding it. Perhaps it's an unbridled lust for someone or something. Perhaps it's an anger that is absolutely eating you alive. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit is very able to tell you and tell me what it is that we need to exercise internal judgment in. The best thing that could happen is when each of us exercise internal judgment. Because the Bible said that if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged by God. It is the desire of a merciful, loving, compassionate, caring God that the very moment that you are convicted of sin is the very moment you repent of it. And if the Lord is bringing you under conviction today, this is the very presence of God. Do not harden your heart. Do you know how you can measure your spiritual growth? I'll tell you a way by which you can measure your spiritual growth. How short is the time between sin and your repentance and forsaking of that sin? If internal judgment does not happen, you will be judged externally. And if that does not work, the worst of all, of all judgments, is the eternal judgment. And if the eternal judgment is the only option you're going to leave to God, that is the only option that He will offer back to you. 
The Bible said, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from every sin. Thought, word, deed, whatever it may be. What I'm talking about here is not another renewing of your commitment to God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a momentary decision that you make based on emotions, and then when you walk out of these doors, you forgot all about it. That is not what I'm talking about. I am talking about that phone call that you need to make. I'm talking about that letter that you need to write. I'm talking about that visit that you're probably dreading, but you need to make. I'm talking about the restitution that God has been telling you you need to make, and you need to pay, and you need to do it now. You have a choice whether you place yourself under the internal judgment or the external judgment or the eternal judgment. You have a choice whether you place yourself under God's mercy or God's judgment. I want to tell you what I do. I deserve nothing. Anybody close to me know that, know my heart. But I often say to the Lord, Lord, I deserve nothing but your judgment, but I will place myself under your mercy any time. Precious Heavenly Father, you know who we are and what we're made of. Your binoculars reaches all the way down to the past, the present, and the future. And therefore, Lord, we stand in a testimony. I stand here as a testimony, Lord, to seek, to seek the internal judgment, Lord, that I judge myself, that we judge ourselves. Father God, whatever it is that we ask you to empower us, to rid of, decide, and walk afresh with you today. Father, I pray that this be not just a mental decision, but active decision. Father, I pray that the loss of joy and peace and the fact that heaven seems like iron sometimes and the earth like brass and the dryness in our spiritual life, Father, that be renewed today, that we go out in these last days and make you known. Father, I pray that in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.